few weeks ago, we did the first 11 chapters as a review and uh, want to be able to try to continue uh, with our with our overview of these things. And I'm hoping that by you having the notes uh, from the prior week and this week, at least if you have these summary notes, that will be kind of a reference point for you for some of these uh, key details. Uh, your Revelation workbook has this material in the back, uh, but I know if the dog ate it, there is uh, paper uh, in the back as well. But these are in the back of your Revelation uh, workbook. All right, chapter 12, and that's page 41 uh, in the back of your workbook, or I guess it's 41 on the handout too. So. <clears throat> What's the message concerning the dragon? Chapter 12 has this dragon that, that appears on the scene. Who is he and what's the big message about him? The devil. He is the devil. And he's going to be defeated. So what's he, what's he, he's actually is, is defeated. So what does, what's his big message of what he's now going to do since he's uh, been cast out of heaven and has been defeated? Good. So chapter 12 talks about there in verse 17, making war on the rest of God's servants. So very important transition to this book is we're going to see the dragon's attempt to uh, destroy the people of God after failing uh, against God and his anointed. So chapter 13, what does the first beast represent? Roman Empire. Roman Empire. And if you want to do a parenthetical side note to that for your proof, you'd go to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is the vision with four beasts. And there's that fourth terrifying beast. That's the one you're seeing the descriptions of the beast in Revelation 13 are the same as the one in, in Daniel 7. So these again continue to be confirming points about the connections between Daniel and Revelation. Revelation is revealing what was sealed prophecy in the book of Daniel. And so you're seeing that uh, happen here. So the Roman Empire and what are we told in, in chapter 13 the first beast is doing? What's his purpose? Be the, go ahead. Making war on the people of God. Remember the chapter 12 said the dragon's goal is to make war on the people of God. Well, how's he going to do it? He raises up this first beast to do that. He uses the Roman Empire as a means by which to uh, make war on God's people. Question three there under chapter 13. What does the second beast represent? This one's a little bit trickier, right? This is the one that, that I love. It is. It is. And one of the ways to prove that is when you go to chapter 19, verse 20, which is what I put in your, your workbook there, rather than calling it the first beast and the second beast, it's the beast and the false prophet is the, the terminology there. So this underscores that the second beast is really the religious aspect of what the Roman Empire is doing. And that's why uh, you have the the description of it causes people to worship the beast. That's what you see in chapter 13, verses 13 through 17. They're going to, the second beast causes the people to worship that first beast. So it, it, the religion's the, the right word. This is just this pagan imperial worship that is going on that's intended to generate worship toward uh, the Roman emperor, the Roman government, and things like that. And then uh, question four, what does 666 represent? <laughs> Things of the world. 
humanity. As it says it's the number of a man or number of people or number of, uh, of humanity. Um, and when we went through that, I basically said that since the whole of the chapter has been the first beast is the structure of the Roman Empire itself that's going to make war on the people of God. The second beast, the false prophet, it is using religion to cause people to worship the first beast. Well, then who are the ones who are doing that? I, I would submit to you that 666 then is representing the emperors and any of the others who are claiming uh, deification or uh, demanding demanding worship. Essentially, the message is, don't worship them. They're just people. They're just men. They're just humans. That's 666. It's the number of people. <laughs> so don't worship them, even though they're causing you to worship the beast and worship its image and want you to do that and treat it as God. Don't do that. That's not what, what it's representing. Yeah. So I want to bring it to today's case. Uh, this is the first recently we're talking <laughs> I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes me to, to a thought process in learning the Bible and what this represents. Um, it is the music industry. It is the all of these that we are simply supposed to know it exists. We have to function in the world like they did in that day. We still have to go shopping. Yep. We still have to do all that. It's staying within the Lord and knowing they're yeah. not marked. Yeah, it, it, it's, nothing has changed in terms of society and culture attempting to get people to elevate, deify, and worship uh, people, structures, and systems, right? You know, from governments to leaders. I mean, that's just, that's always been the thing, right? That's nothing new going on here. <laughs> Still the same in 2023. Same thing is, is certainly going on. All right, uh, chapter 14, uh, who are the 144,000? All right, all the people of God, all the servants of God, the way you can know that is there in verse 1 of chapter 14. Verse 1 and verse 2 talks about we're going to go mark those, the servants of, of God. Or, and so that was the same group that we saw back in chapter 7. So they're stated here again as the servants of God. What is the message of the three angels in chapter 14, if you were to summarize what they're proclaiming? What's that? Good news, certainly. And uh, what are some of the contents of that good news? Yeah. Christ is in charge and fallen is Babylon, right? So you know, God, God's reigning and he's overthrowing uh, this, this beast. So fallen, fallen is Babylon. So we're talking about the world empire in that day and time, because in the first century, you don't have a Babylon. So you'd say, okay, Babylon symbolizes the world power at the time. The world power in the first century is the Roman Empire. And there at the end of chapter 14, you have this harvest. What does the harvest symbolize? As you see these sickles going through and harvesting. Okay, we have judgment imagery that's, that's happening there. Uh, I, when, when we went through it, I said the first swinging of the sickle, I think, is of the faithful. And the second swinging of the sickle is the unfaithful. So you have the gathering and those who belong to God. And then the second reaping, you have them thrown in the wine press and they're trampled. So uh, that's consistent of what you see God doing in, in pictures. You think that, of how uh, God told all kinds of parables that sound like that, where he's bringing in those who are the wheat and he's casting off those who are tares. He's always the imagery of God gathers his own. 
and then judges those who are not his own. So I think you see that in chapter 14. Chapter 15, what preparations are being made? What's happening as 15 starts ramping up, kind of as a warm-up declaration? Yes, God's about to act, and the message that's given in his action is almost like this woe, because when these plagues come, God's wrath will be complete. So uh, chapter 15 is, is God making a statement that the plagues are about to come, and when I do, that's going to be the exhausting of, of my, my wrath, or if you wanted to put it another way, the exhausting of what the book of Daniel had prophesied. There were two things that were still outstanding that needed judgment, Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, and so here this will be the completion of that. So chapter 15 is the, the statement that that's about to happen. Guess what? The plagues are in chapter 16. What do those first six bulls uh, reveal in chapter 16? If you were to kind of try to sum all them together of what they're doing. Why all these bulls of wrath? Yeah, well, and it's starting to bring it. It is on the Roman Empire. It is on Babylon, that, that picture of bringing, bringing judgment. Um, you might note and remember that we have some fractions in there. So when we see fractions, what are we supposed to think of? Partial judgments are coming, which makes sense because in, cha- in chapter 16, verse 9, and chapter 16, verse 11, twice it says that those judgments came, and it says, but the people did not repent. So these things are happening. And by the way, that's what I talked about last Sunday night here on Joel 1, is here's events happening. God is at work intending people to wake up, look up, repent. Uh, and so we saw that in Joel 1 in our Sunday night lesson as well as uh, that's what God's accomplishing. Same thing here, six bulls doing that same kind of revealing. By the way, with this study of Revelation, you are well prepared for the Sunday night series because Joel is going to talk a lot like the book of Revelation. You're going to feel very comfortable with that Joel language because you are now uh, well-versed A students in Revelation, right? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, we'll see if you're A students after I give out the test. Oh, yeah, I keep threatening, but it's not going to happen. It's all right. It's not a college course. Uh, question two, what does the seventh bowl reveal when you get to the end of chapter 17? Seventh bowl is poured out. What does it show? Yeah, Babylon Falls. The phrase is stated, it is done. Uh, And amazingly, even though it is done, we're told again in verse 21 of chapter 16, the people still don't repent. They curse God all the more. So they're still not done cursing God, still not learning. Even the fall of a nation, a world empire does not make everybody go, hey, maybe we should look to God. You know, maybe we should kind of think a little bit spiritually here. Maybe we should get our eyes upward. Even that doesn't accomplish it. Uh, but the seventh bowl does reveal the, the end of Babylon, and it is done. Chapter 17, who's the great prostitute? Still, in, still with, with Babylon, because it says on, on her forehead is the word uh, Babylon, right? So emblazoned, emblazoned there on her, on, her, on her forehead in chapter 17 and verse 5. Um, and you also see that back in chapter 14, verse 8, as well as chapter 16, verse 19. 
One of the keys to Babylon right there is if you look at chapter 17, verse 18, Babylon is described as the great city that has dominion or rule. You know, it depends on your translation. The great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And if you're standing in the first century and you were going to say, what is the great city that has rule over all the kings of the earth at that time? Rome. I mean, it's just that's an unavoidable if you don't see the woman that's <laughs> from, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it says it right there. It's the great city that has rule over the kings of the earth in the first century. There is no other city uh, that has rule over, over the kings of the earth. So that's a key flag. And if I have time at the end of class, I'll drop those key flags one more time for you when we wrap it up. And then question two. How is the beast going to be destroyed? This one's a little bit trickier, but it is stated at the end of chapter 17, and it is unique. Did you catch that? Or is that a blank spot in your papers? Uh, Unlike the other ones where you have a description of another world power coming and destroying, like we saw in Revelation 9, the locusts are being used to come against um, Jerusalem. You'll notice in verses 16 and 17, it will talk about how the peoples of the empire turn against the beast. It's really interesting that it gives that detail that uh, you have all of the Roman provinces and regions and verses 16 and 17 say they're going to turn and hate the beast, which is so ironic because they're the ones that were supporting the beast and worshiping the beast. And that's what made up the Roman Empire is they took all those different lands and it stretched out across much of the known world. But then they're all going to go, we don't like this anymore. And they're going to destroy the beast. So that's what you see chapter 17 describing. Chapter 18, what's the impact of the fall of the beast? When the Roman Empire goes, what's chapter 18 show? What's that? Yeah, business is dead. Uh, This is a catastrophic economic loss. And I think it is interesting that uh, when the strength of the Roman Empire falls, you are basically ushering in the Dark Ages. Is that all of that prosperity, all of the exporting, how trade happened throughout the known world uh, absolutely dries up at, at that point. So chapter 18 is a very full description of what they thought was going to be the world's benefit or turned out to be the world's uh, difficulty because of the economic loss. Chapter 19, who is the victorious rider riding in on that white horse? Like, here, here, here's, a, here's a cheat sheet. You see a guy riding in on a white horse, who's he probably? Christ. <laughs> So all of this is these images of judgment are ultimately pointing to this is Christ on the throne and he's doing it. He's the one who's bringing about these judgments. He's the one causing the rise and fall of nations and leaders. So chapter 19 opens with him coming in on that white horse and there's blood splattered showing his victory over the, the nations and the peoples that have stood against him. Uh, and who are judged, chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, the beast, the false prophet, and the kings of the earth. Basically, everybody's going to stand before God and have a judgment. And so uh, those who have stood against God from chapter 12, all well, chapter 13, all the way to this point, are now brought before the Lord and ultimately judged. 
All right, chapter 20, and we'll see if this is where more, more uh, questions arise. Because chapter 20 is a tough one. What does it mean for Satan to be cast into the abyss? We spent a lot of time talking about that one. Kathy? Absolutely. Very important definition is given there that says that Satan will no longer be allowed to deceive the nations is what those first three verses talk about. So it doesn't say Satan is no longer going to be active or powerful. It doesn't say that. You have the Apostle Paul saying he's the prince of the power of the air. He is active. Peter says he's a roaring lion seeking out whom he may devour. That doesn't change. That's still the case. But it's telling us that he can't deceive the nations which in the book of revelation is satan raising up that world empire that fourth terrifying beast and using it to persecute the people of god that's what chapters 12 and 13 were all about how is satan going to make war on the people of god he's going to use a a government an actual um, national agency and use that as the means to destroy god's people that's now limited. He's not able to do that anymore. Uh, number two, uh, who is reigning with Christ? Yes. So here are those who have been faithful to him. They've given their lives. I mean, that's been the message of the book of Revelation. Be faithful unto death. Be willing to, to stay with him. Don't worship the beast. Don't worship its image. Stay faithful to God be, and be able to endure to the end. And so you're seeing that pictured again in chapter 20, around verses 4 through 6 there, uh, about those who remain faithful to him. When did Christ's reign begin? Because did you see in chapter 20 this idea of him uh, inaugurating his 1,000-year reign? So when did the scriptures tell us that started? That is resurrection. I'll give you some passages for that. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, has the ascension of Christ and seated on the throne when he ascends. So that's that's projecting, prophesying of when Christ dies, raises from the dead, he ascends to the Father, he sits down at the right hand of, of God. Remember, Peter in Acts 2 makes that argument. He then stands up and says, everything that you see going on proves Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And that's why you see what you see, is that he was reigning. Um, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. And then also 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26. So that's Daniel 7, Ephesians 1, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 15. Among many other places you could go, but those are some pretty direct ones, Debbie. One thing I find a little confusing, I discussed it before, I went through this, but I don't think I really got it in my head. Is that if the thousand years starting from Christ's resurrection, right. and Satan was bound and couldn't use the nation, <coughs> right. why is he able to still use Rome to persecute? Because that was still going on. Right. That's still unwinding. Right. Uh, And because it wasn't going to be, I think, a a point in time, but Christ ascends to the throne that exercises and shows his authority over nations and rulers. And so his I would I would actually make the point we could even back up off of Rome. 
And his first act of coming in the clouds and judgment is going to be the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew 26, Jesus tells Caiaphas, you're going to see me coming in the clouds. (laughs) Well, that wasn't going to be the end of the world. Caiaphas isn't going to live that long. He's talking about now he's going to have that authority and he's going to judge. And so he's using it. So he's beginning his rule and is in the process of putting all the enemies under his feet. Yeah, it kind of is. And well, and to be fair, he's still doing that now. I think one of the reasons people struggle with, well, how can Christ be on the throne now? Well, because he's allowing people to repent. But eventually he goes, that's it. Time for judgment. So he gives Jerusalem time. It finally falls. He gives the Roman Empire time. It finally falls. And he does that with all peoples and nations. So it's a process. It's not, it wasn't, I sat on the throne and here's the end of the world. Boom. It's. Now I'm subjugating, putting enemies under my feet. And maybe a a good scripture to help with that is, again, the 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. Because the Apostle Paul says that that he's on the throne and he's putting all enemies under his feet. And do you remember what the last enemy he says is? Death. (laughs) So once that's under his feet, then comes the end is the next sentence. Not not my words. That's what it says. Once death is destroyed, that's it. Then comes the end, and the kingdom is returned back to the Father. So that's the very end of it all. So subjugating peoples and nations, putting enemies under his feet, and the final one to be dealt with is death. And when that one's gone and done, there's nothing left. Okay. Good question. Because chapter 20 is complex. Uh, Question four, what will Satan do once he's released from the abyss in verses 7 and 8? It's going to deceive the nations again. So we talked about that. That one, That's interesting. I have always found that line interesting. Is that at some point, there's this opportunity for him again. I made the point that I think that means he's going to try again, but God's not going to let it happen. But that's just my reading of it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe that there'll be another rise of a, power against God's people yet again but I don't think that's the way to read that question 5 what will be the end of Satan according to verse 10 he's also cast into the lake of fire and then verses 11 through 15 describe what got this great great white throne what does that all mean final judgment so now we're, we're at, at the end finally final judgment happens so Death is destroyed, Satan's cast into the lake of fire, books are opened before the great white throne, and everybody is judged according to their deeds. Uh, chapter 21, what are the new, what's the new heaven and the new earth? Also tricky. What's that? Okay, so you're seeing this whole beautiful, the no more tears and death and all of that is being described. What's that? Depends on who you ask. You're right. It is depends on who you ask. So that's why I think this is worth like underscoring a little bit. I don't believe this is saying (laughs) that what's going to happen is is in the final judgment, God's going to make a whole new heaven and a whole new renovated earth. And we're all going to live on it and all of that. I, I won't get into it, but that's becoming very in vogue right now. Very, very in vogue. To me, one of the biggest problems of why I'm not jumping on the in vogue boat 
is because the book of Revelation is symbolic. And I can't start now going, well, I want that to be literal. Once you start doing that, you're in a mess of trouble. You can't start picking and choosing when you want things literal, because then you're going to go get a literal dragon or a literal thousand years or a literal scorpions that have stingers and all that or literal locusts. Or, I mean, there's all the things in the book of Revelation that so many interpretations go back to and start picking out when they want something to be literal. But you can't do it. You got to hold the symbols all the way through. So new heavens and new earth is just a new system and a new order and a new way of things. The old way is sin, temptation, suffering, pain, and loss. After final judgment, it's a new system where there's no more tears and no more pain and no more sin and no more temptation and no more loss and no more hurt. Whole new system, whole new arrangement. That's what we're waiting for. That's what Peter says at the end of chapter 3. We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, not where there's a mixture of righteousness and evil and sin and good and bad and light and dark. It's all light. Which, by the way, isn't that what chapters 21 and 22 start describing? Right? There's no night there and God's their light. It's the, 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 the whole. These two chapters are driving at what this new order and arrangement look like. So... For now, that's why I'm not there. If one day I change my mind, I'll have a Bible study with you and show you why I changed my mind. But I've, I've read a lot of books. I have people close in my life who've tried to tell me otherwise. And I still go, mm. you still haven't answered all my questions. And this is one of them. How do you start taking this literally? How can you do that? It just doesn't work to this book. Uh, question two, who's the holy city, the new Jerusalem? We see it coming down out of heaven. The purified, perfected people of God. You want a lot of P's? Purified, perfected people of God. <laughs> so you're seeing us in our perfected state now. We have been made worthy and righteous to be joined to the, the wedding uh, of the Lamb. And so question three there, what's the point of the imagery and all of these descriptions? We talked about. You're just seeing the glory and the splendor of God that we are going to enjoy for all eternity. So you just get these vivid, amazing, glorious, immense images of, of what eternity with God looks like. And, you know, how do you try to describe a spiritual reality to to physical humans who are bound by space and time? You just, yeah, you don't. <laughs> so what do you do? You kind of start saying, well, look at all these gems and look at all this beauty and look at all the splendor and look at all the gold and look at all the, you know, just what can you do to try to help us understand how magnificent it is, except just throw as much glory as you can at the wall to try to just get a feel of how immense it's going to be, uh, be in the presence of God. Trish. Well, and that's actually what the description is, is that chapters 21 and 22 are not about location. You know, sometimes that's the songs, you know, we're going to be walking on streets of gold. No, <laughs> that's an image of how amazing it is to be with God. <laughs> that's what it's trying to describe is relationally. Well, how do I describe this relationship except using glorious, valuable, expensive 
images, but it's not saying, you know, and, and literally there's going to be these walls and, and, you know, Peter's name's inscribed on it. It's not trying to get at that. It's just trying to get at, do you understand how amazing this is going to be uh, in eternity with God? Nathan? Peter's description of home of righteousness yes. is, is what it's all about. Um, you know, because we, we don't have a, any understanding of what that looks like. We don't. All that we have is one very small chapter that gives us a little bit into it. Genesis 2, where you have Adam and Eve walking with God, and how amazing that was, would have been. It just says, you know, they're just walking with God in the cool of the day. I still can't even get my mind around that one. <laughs> but we aren't given much because everything is about restoring back to that order. That's what chapter 22 is all about, is really trying to show everything that's been lost has now been restored. Chapter 22 describes a tree of life. Last time we saw that in God's word was all the way back in Genesis 2 and 3. It's where you see the tree of life there. Uh, and the rivers of the water of life, that's also been prophesied like in Ezekiel, as well as Jesus standing up in John 7 talking about rivers of living water flowing out of him. This is a restoration of life for his people. Oh, yes, question two, very important. What's the time frame of the book? He said it in chapter 1. He says it about five times in chapter 22. Soon, 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 soon. The time is near. So again, I will stand on my head as uh, Faith drew a picture of me standing on my head. I thought that was great. <laughs> she handed me a paper this morning. <laughs> Has the pulpit and me upside down on it. <laughs> I went in there and I said, is this me standing on my head? She goes, Yep. <laughs> said, well, I keep saying I'm going to, so <laughs> I know it works. <laughs> they want to see it. Uh, maybe 20 years ago, I could have tried. <laughs> but, so, so what do they say? With age comes wisdom. I'm not going to try. Um, <laughs> but what a picture that's given to us there to say these things will soon take place. So any interpretation that does not have somehow the contents of this book starting soon, being near, just doesn't work. And that's, I think, a really important framework. So many interpretations have the book of Revelations, um, the book of Revelations, time markers and interpretations and prophecies all in time. That will not work. The book starts and ends with, must soon take place, must soon take place. And I stood on my head and said, figuratively, symbolically, that even a Roman, uh, Roman Empire-only view has a problem because that's also not soon. That is also not near. That can't just be that. That's a problem because how do you say 400 years is soon? It's not. It's outside of their lifetime. So that's why we walked through it the way that we did. Number three, uh, who are in the city of God as described in chapter 22? The faithful. The faithful. There's, Descriptions of them being blameless and faithful. Who's left out? There's lofts, lists in these two chapters about who's left out, but nothing accursed, nothing that is evil, nothing that is unrighteous. And finally, what's the final warning concerning the words of the prophecy in the book? Don't add, don't take away, don't change it, don't alter it in any way whatsoever. So that's 
the sum of the book. So here's my quick tent flags, and that'll leave us maybe a couple minutes if you have some questions to go over any other things. So tent flag one. Book says, must soon take place, must soon take place, must soon take place. Don't ever let go of that. Front of the book, back of the book. Number two, first three verses of chapter one. An angel comes and puts this in symbols. It is a vision. It is a prophecy that are visuals about things that are going to happen. So we read the book as symbolic, unless something in the text demands otherwise. It is symbols. It is symbols. It is symbols. Number three, big tent flag. Chapter 10 and chapter 11, chapter 11 in particular, talks about who the object of God's wrath is. And then verse 2 and in verse 3 of Revelation 11, you have the holy city being trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. To me, that is just like, what else would be the holy city being trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. It's Jerusalem. I, as much as people have tried to turn that image into Rome, Rome's not the holy city. It's not trampled by the Gentiles. It's not trampled for 42 months. And you can go to Luke 21 where Jesus parallels that and says the exact same thing when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So chapter 11, very important. But the other Key tent flag number four is at the end of Revelation 17 and verse 18. The great city that is described there is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth is judged. Well, the great city is not Jerusalem that has dominion over the kings of the earth. It doesn't have that power. Rome has that power. So you have clear places that I think are obviously pointing when we're talking to Jerusalem and when we're talking to Rome and otherwise I think you're trying to stick a square peg in a round hole (laughs) and then the final picture is the judgment of Satan and I gave you the picture that I believe then the way to look at Revelation is is a block of dominoes all standing on their end and so these things must soon take place because Jerusalem is going to fall And Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So now the question for your next domino is, well, what's going to happen to the Romans? Because they judge them and they're evil. God goes, yeah, I'm going to judge them too. They're going to fall. Well, who was the one who brought up the Roman Empire and caused it to make war on the people of God? Satan. Satan's going to be judged and that domino is going to fall. So there's a linear progression in that way about what the book is doing and talking about the object of God's wrath and makes sense why you would say it soon is like, like Debbie pointed out is Christ is on the throne and he's already taking action. He's already judging nations and it's already happening. It would be visibly seen in those two nations and then ultimately seen in Satan. All right. Final chances. Anywhere in this review, any, any final, final, didn't make sense, don't understand, still confused. How do you come up with that? You're crazy. Any of those chances you got right here? It's like, you're crazy. It's, it's, it's valid all day, every day. But, Jim? Okay. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and there's a reason why Paul talks about the, uh, the, the, the immense eternal weight of glory that's ahead of us it just cannot be compared to anything that we're grasping or experiencing. There's, it's just incomparable. You just, how do you try to convince people about what lies ahead? And, you know, that, that's, 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 C.S. Lewis put it in that, in that framework of how do you essentially try to convince a, a, a kid to stop playing with mud pies and puddles when they're being offered a vacation on the beach and they've never been there. You know, how do you get them out of the mud puddle that they're playing at because there's something so amazing that's over there? That's our problem is we're just sitting here in our mud puddles. We can't grasp what's, what's ahead of us, even though the scriptures are constantly trying to say, you have no idea what's ahead of you. It is worth every sacrifice, every offering, whatever it takes. You have no idea how great it is because right now we're just sitting in mud puddles. So that's how we have to try to just keep that in our heads as best we can about what we're what we're aiming toward. Dave? Yeah. When we see people talk a lot about soon and these kinds of and all the symbolism, we forget that there is still applications for us today. For sure. So Absolutely. God is still always present yes. in everything that is happening That's in right. my life today. That's right. God is still patient and waiting for us to repent. That still happens today. Yes. And God has, like the book of Acts has said, is He has a fixed day in which everything in Revelation 21 and 22 yeah. will come to pass. Right. Do we, are we going to be ready? It's like that song we sing today is, Are you ready? That's right. That's not just for them, that's for us today. The applications are still very Yes, it's very important that one of our big takeaways to the book of Revelation is seeing the immensity of Christ's rule to not read the book of Revelation and go, okay, well, the whole book was about a couple of judgments and they're done. And now we're just kind of sitting here floating around waiting for final judgment. Those are representative of God's rule. He's still doing the same things and still subjugating nations and peoples. And that's where our hope is, just as much as God was giving these Christians hope in the first century that, hey, I'm with you. And even though you're experiencing all of these turmoils and difficulties and problems, I'm going to deal with that in time. I, I, I'm taking care of it. I'm, I'm bringing judgment. And that hasn't changed at all. That is still the case. Whatever we're going through, whatever lies ahead that we have to experience, God's going to deal with it. God is absolutely on the throne and is ruling over nations. So it is a very important uh, reminder. Mickey. Yeah. Yes. 
This, this is why uh, we use a phrase that the Apostle Paul taught us. We walk by faith and not by sight. Because it's all about that. Is I'm just trusting that what God says he's got going on is going to be better than what he, he said. Because that's what he told me. Is it's going to be worth it. You're going to be glad you made the choice. You're going to be glad you followed him. And it will be more amazing than you can possibly conceive. Uh, and I mean, that makes sense. I can't, it's amazing what he's created here on earth. It is mind blowing and staggering. You know, you can't even find the edge of space. There are things that are infinite apparently in our universe. And this is physical. <laughs> what does the spiritual realm like? <laughs> right? It's just mind blown. We just, we can't, we can't even wrap our heads around. And if we did wrap our Well, and again, it fits It fits the God that we serve. If you can wrap your mind around God, he's not God. Because, I mean, he's he's got to be infinitely diverse in all of his characteristics and who he is. That you can't even begin to get your hands around who this God is. Well, then what he has made is the same idea. And again, so we sit back and go, wow. <laughs> you know, I... I sit back and go look at the Grand Canyon and go, wow. And God's like, yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> nah. You think Niagara Falls is cool? Just wait. <laughs> These are small things to what God has in store for us. Any other questions? Or you feel like you are now ready to start your own podcast on Revelation? <laughs> Yes. That's right. Absolutely. I don't have enough faith to believe in some floating gas that got excited and exploded and started all of this or aliens flew by and made it all happen on the earth that's Bart Ehrman's idea I don't have faith for of that I have faith that the complexity of what I see indicates a very complex creator and it's an unavoidable conclusion just as I love always love the watchmaker um, illustration that you've never met the person who made your watch but you know somebody made it because it's quite complex and does what it's supposed to do it, it takes very little faith to believe somebody made that thing because it works constantly on the nose. And it takes very little faith to believe somebody made all this because it keeps working. You know, nobody was surprised that the sun came up today. And, you know, here we are yet, yet again. You know, you can wake up and go, man, we just flew off axis again and we're whizzing by Pluto. You know, it's every time, like clockwork, it just works. Indicates there must be someone who put it there. It's just, I don't have... Enough faith to believe anything else. Yeah.